Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logue. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logue is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, you grab a Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 10. We've reached a turning point uh, in our study through Genesis uh, as God is working out his grand plan of redemption for the world. Uh, This morning we are going to read about his covenant with Abram and what it takes to be a part of that covenant. And so we're in Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to pick up this morning beginning in verse 1. It says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So last week, Abram rescued Lot, his nephew, out of captivity to a coalition of Mesopotamian kings. And then he had an encounter with Melchizedek, the mysterious king-priest of the city of Salem, who blessed him. Now as we move into chapter 15, we see that sometime after the events of of chapter 14, the Lord speaks to Abram in a vision and says to him, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And of course, the imagery of of a shield represents protection from harm. And there have been a number of suggestions as to why Abram may have cause to fear at this particular moment. Is, Is he perhaps worried about this group of kings Uh, coming back again? Or is is he concerned financially because he turned down all of the wealth of Sodom? Or is the the glory of God in this vision so completely overwhelming in the moment? Or or is there something else going on that that we don't know about? And I suppose it could be any or or all of those things. Uh, but, But here the Lord reassures Abram that no matter what he faces in life, he is going to fulfill his promise to protect and bless him, and he reassures him that his reward is going to be very great. Not just great, but very great. Now, in response, Abram says to the Lord in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. You see, whatever Abram is protected from, whatever reward he may have, he doesn't necessarily see the point of it all at this, at this time because he still doesn't have a son to carry on his lineage after him. 
And the, the, the person who is in line to inherit his estate is a man named Eliezer of Damascus. Now, we don't know anything about Eliezer, uh, except that he's mentioned here as a member of Abram's household. And so perhaps Eliezer is, is Abram's most trusted servant uh, or something along those lines. Uh, but he stands to take over once Abram is gone. However, in verse 4, the Lord insists that Eliezer will not be Abram's heir but that he will have a son of his very own to be his heir. And not only that, but then in verse 5, the Lord takes Abram outside and he tells him to look up at the sky and, and, and try to count the stars. And he says that numbering his future offspring would be like trying to count all of the stars. Right, now here in Lumberton, We've got so much light pollution that if, you, if you're outside and look up at the sky, you might miss the significance of this visual. But if you're ever out in the middle of nowhere and you look up at the night sky, you will see just how many stars there are up there. And, and you will have a clear view of just how powerful this moment must have been for Abram. Right? All he wants is, is one son, but the Lord is promising to bless him above and beyond his wildest dreams. Now, as Abram hears this promise, verse 6 gives us one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. It tells us that he, referring to Abram, believed the Lord, and he, referring to the Lord, counted it to him, referring to Abram, as righteousness. Right? Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And there are a couple things that we should consider about what we find in this verse. First of all, I find it interesting that the verb to believe is universally translated as a simple past tense. He believed, and yet it is universally understood by scholars that it is not a simple past tense. Uh, the, the verb here is in the past tense, but the force of the action is, is not simple. It's actually a continuation of an act that is already in progress. And so we might say that, that Abram reaffirmed his faith in the Lord here. And if you think about it, this understanding makes sense in context because we've already seen that Abram leaving everything behind to go to the land of Canaan in the first place was an act of faith. That, that Abram's uh, consistent practice of building altars to worship the Lord has been a demonstration of his faith. And the way that he interacted last week with Melchizedek and the king of Sodom showed his faith. Abram has been believing God, and now in this moment, despite the natural impossibility of the situation, Abram continues to believe God's promise that he will have a son. And then secondly, we need to consider the implications of what it means that God counted Abram's faith as righteousness. Right, to be righteous means to be in the right. Uh, it means to be morally upright, to meet God's standards of character and conduct. And the problem, of course, is that ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, nobody is righteous. Right? Nobody is actually righteous. And so the, the issue here is that Abram isn't righteous in of himself. We've already seen that, for one, and we're going to continue to see it as the story moves forward. Abram is not a perfect person, but, but what verse 6 is telling us is that he does believe that God will do what he says he will do. And it says that the Lord credited, he counted Abram's faith in him as righteousness. 
The Lord considers Abram to be righteous because he believes. And so by faith, Abram is in a right relationship with God despite his sin. And we're going to come back to that later on. But verse 6 is really like a summary statement of everything that has happened in the story uh, ever since chapter 12. Abram is living by faith in God's promises. And everything that has happened in the story since chapter 12 has been leading up to this decisive moment, which we're going to see as we pick up again in verse 7. It says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And so as we pick up here in verse 7, we fast forward uh, to some time later, maybe as soon as the next day, but, but some time later. And this time the Lord says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And so the Lord has, has reaffirmed his promise to give Abram a son to be his heir. And now he reminds him of the fact that he has brought him to the land of Canaan to give him this land. He's going to possess it. But as we've already seen, Abram is living in this land as an outsider in the midst of, of a bunch of, of other people groups that are already there. And so in verse 8, he asks for some kind of confirmation that the Lord really is going to do this. And since we've just seen that Abram believes God, I don't think that we should understand this, this request as a sign of faithlessness on his part necessarily. I think it's right for us to think of this in the same way as, as the father in Mark chapter 12, who has a child possessed by a demon, and, and he calls out to the Lord and says, I believe, help my unbelief. Right, Abram uh, is asking the Lord for, for something to help fortify his faith. He does believe, he's just also a little confused about how all this is actually going to work. And in response, the Lord instructs Abram to bring him some animals, a three-year-old female cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and then a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And immediately, Abram would have known what this was. God is going to make a covenant with him. And I'm going to explain more about that as we go. So in verse 10, Abram gets the animals and he sacrifices them. And then he lays them out in, in two rows with one half of each animal over here and one half of the animal over here. Uh, again, in two rows with the exception of the birds, which he does not cut. And then in verse 11, we see that the birds of prey come down to eat on the carcasses of the animals, and Abram chases them away. And that's, that's an odd-sounding detail. Uh, it's so strange that it, it seems to me that it, it can't simply be a, a coincidental detail. And there have been various attempts to explain the, the significance of that, uh, but I'm really not sure of what to make of it. Uh, nobody has convinced me that uh, what they're interpreting it as is, is correct. At the very least, I think we can say that Abram is protecting these animals for the purpose that God has for them, which we're going to see as we pick up again in verse 12. It says, As the sun was going down, 
A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your father, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And so as we pick up again one last time in verse 12, Abram has, has set the scene for a covenant ceremony. And we see that as the, as the sun goes down, a deep sleep falls upon him, much like uh, what we saw happened to Adam uh, when the Lord put him to sleep and took one of his ribs to fashion Eve. And in the midst of this sleep, we see that a, a great and uh, dreadful darkness overwhelms him, which, which I take to be uh, the result of being in the presence of God. And then the Lord reveals exactly how his promise of the land is going to work out. He explains that Abram's descendants, like him, are going to be sojourners in a land that is not their own, and they're going to be slaves there for 400 years. But after that time, the Lord is going to execute judgment against that nation, and he's going to bring them out with great possessions into this land where Abram is right now. And of course, this is pointing forward to the Exodus, when, when the Lord uh, and, and Moses lead the Israelites out of Egypt and bring them into the promised land. And then in verse 15, the Lord reveals that Abram himself will go to his fathers, which is a, a polite way of referring to death, uh, in peace, and he will be buried at a good old age. And so Abram is going to be blessed with a, a long, good life, but he isn't going to live to see the fulfillment of this promise, which is why the Lord is explaining it to him right now. And then in verse 16, the Lord reveals a component behind the timing of when all this will happen. He says that the people will receive the land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet completely. Now, this is the first indication that we have had in the story that the, the Canaanite people are wicked, but apparently they are. And, and while the Lord is patient, there is coming a point when he will no longer tolerate their sinful activity, and he's going to judge them, similar to how we've already gotten a hint about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah a couple chapters ago. And so we need to understand here that the Lord bringing the Israelites into the promised land serves a, a dual function uh, of, number one, establishing God's people in a land where he can dwell among them, and two, executing judgment against the Canaanites because of their sin through the Israelites taking the land from them. And so this answers the question that perhaps we haven't thought to ask up to this point, which is the Lord has promised this land to Abram, and yet there are all of these people who are already there, 
So, so what's going to happen to them? Well, what's going to happen is that they're going to experience the judgment of God uh, by, by bringing the Israelites into the land. And so then in verse 17, sometime later the sun has gone down and it's dark. And at that time, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass in between the, the pieces of dead animal that, that Abram has laid out uh, in these two rows. Now, this is not Beauty and the Beast. So we are not to understand here that this pot and this torch are somehow alive and acting on their own. Instead, we should understand these to be visible expressions of the presence of God. Uh, and, and there's two reasons for that. For one, there are only two parties here. You've got Abram and the Lord. And Abram is currently on the ground in a quasi-coma. So it's not Abram. And then secondly, beyond that, smoke and fire often accompany the, the physical presence of God in the Bible. And so this imagery is intended to communicate that this is the Lord. And so this is the essence of a covenant ceremony. The, the significance of this is that as the terms of the agreement are established, uh, the participants bind themselves to keep the covenant by walking in between the pieces of the dead animals that have been laid out. And the symbolism communicates that if I break this covenant... If I do something that violates the terms of this agreement so that it does not come through, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. Right? I'm making a, a solemn oath to keep this covenant or experience the curse of death and judgment. What is so interesting here and vitally important for us to see is that rather than Abram passing through or Abram and the Lord passing through together, it is the Lord alone who passes in between the pieces of these animals, which means that he is taking responsibility for the fulfillment of this covenant on himself alone. And then in verse 8, he declares, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, land that is, is currently inhabited by the ten different people groups that we see in verses 19 through 21. So this is what we call a unilateral covenant, meaning that its fulfillment depends on God alone. Okay, the, the, the things that, that God has said is going to happen here are not conditional on anything that Abram has to do, which is a good thing because, as we've already seen and we're going to continue to see, if it was up to Abram to make this thing work, he'd find a way to mess it up. But no, the, the Lord is the one who passes in between these pieces of animal and takes on uh, the, 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 bear, the burden and the responsibility of the covenant himself. And the idea is that if, the, if this is an unbreakable oath, that if this covenant fails for any reason, the Lord himself would suffer the consequences, the curse of the covenant. And so the seriousness of this moment would provide all of the assurance that Abram needs. Uh, however it works, the Lord is going to do what he has promised. And that sets us up uh, to come back again next week. But in our passage this morning, the Lord reaffirms his promise to give Abram a son who will be his heir and to give him the land of Canaan as, as the promised land for, for his descendants. And from this point on, everything else that happens in the book of Genesis is setting the stage for the outworking of God to fulfill the promise that he makes here. Now, if you've been keeping track over the last several weeks with the, the typological development of the story, this chapter completes 
the cycle that we started back in chapter 12. Again, with, with the idea that the way that God works in the past points forward to the way he's going to work in the future. And so going back again just briefly uh, to chapter 12, and the Lord even uh, references, references it in verses 13 and 14, Abram and Sarai go down to Egypt in order to escape a famine where Sarai is then taken captive by the Pharaoh until the Lord sends plagues and the Pharaoh sends them back out into the promised land with more possessions than when they came. And then uh, Abram uh, drives out uh, wicked kings, as we saw last week, and, and now the Lord makes a covenant with him. And eventually, Abram's descendants are going to go down to Egypt in order to escape from a famine where they will be taken captive by Pharaoh until the Lord sends plagues and the Pharaoh drives them back out into the promised land with more possessions than what they came with, destined to drive out wicked kings from the land. And then in Exodus chapter 20, the people will hear very familiar words as the Lord makes a covenant with them. But this time it won't be, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans, but I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So again, the life of Abram is prefiguring the history of Israel. But to fast forward, the problem, as we already know, is that the covenant of Moses is broken repeatedly. And despite God's patience, the people of Israel over and over again neglect God's law, and they engage in unrepentant sin and idolatry. And so the Lord expels the people from the land and sends them into exile But as we've seen over and over again, there is always hope. The prophets point to a day when God will restore his people. And just to take uh, Jeremiah 16, for example, we see that the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. And so we see that this cycle is going to repeat itself. Again, there is going to be a new exodus that leads to a new covenant, and the New Testament reveals that this happens through the person and work of Jesus. And so if you were with us a couple of years ago as we made our way through the Gospel of Luke, then you may remember from from chapter 9 that on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear to Jesus, and they begin speaking with him about his departure that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And we saw that the word, for whatever reason, the word that we choose to translate as departure is actually the word exodus. They're, they're talking to Jesus about the exodus that he is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is the one who is going to restore God's people once and for all. And he does it by taking the curse of the covenant on himself. Jesus takes the curse of the covenant on himself. What the Lord promises to do here in chapter 15, if necessary, Jesus does through his death on the cross. He takes the punishment that we deserve for breaking God's commandments and so that we do not have to. He takes the curse of the covenant on himself. And as he raises back to resurrection life, he establishes a new covenant through which the promised blessing of Abram will go to all of the nations and all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram's offspring. And we inherit that covenant uh, as we are 
forgiven of our sins, our hearts are transformed, and we have the promise of eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back and drives out all of his enemies for all the rest of time. So the only question that remains is how do we get on the inside of that new covenant? How can we be made right with God? And the answer is the same as it has always been. It is to believe the Lord and have that counted to us as righteousness. All right, the, the, what we see right here this morning in verse 6, believe the Lord and have it counted to you as righteousness. God's people have always been saved by faith. Right, the Old Testament saints were saved in, by faith in what God would do for them through Jesus, and now we are saved today by faith in what God has done for us through Jesus. And so verse 6 here in chapter 15 is one of the most significant verses, one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. We find it in Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3, and James chapter 2, and that's because the New Testament authors recognize that salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So many people today assume that they are a good person, and that while, you know, nobody's perfect, they're probably good enough to go to heaven when they die. But friends, the problem is not just that we aren't perfect. The problem is that we are absolutely unrighteous. Right, to, to paraphrase the old Puritans, we are sinful sinners who sin sinfully. Every single one of us reject God's commandments, and we spend our lives doing what we want to do, how we want to do it, when we want to do it. And, and even the good things that we do do are tainted with sinful motivations. And because of that, we deserve to receive God's judgment for our sin. But the good news of the gospel that has seeds here in Genesis chapter 15 is that Jesus Christ has made a fully sufficient sacrifice for sin. And the New Testament declares that if we will turn from our sin in repentance and believe and entrust ourselves for, for salvation to everything that Jesus has done for us, then God will count our faith as righteousness in the same way that he did for Abram. Friends, we are unrighteous before God. That is the undeniable reality of the situation, every single one of us. But the good news of the gospel this morning means that it, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter what you have done in your life. If you will believe God's promise and entrust yourself to Jesus, then God will count your faith as righteousness. We will be in a right relationship with him, and we will inherit eternal life and everything that goes with it. And so this morning, may we have faith like Abram and inherit the promise of the covenant along with him. Let's pray together. Father, as always, we are grateful for your word. Lord, we're grateful for how you have revealed yourself to us and, and have revealed who we are to us, because otherwise we would not know. And Father, we thank you for the fact that, that Abram's faith stands as an example for us, that if we believe your word, we believe and entrust ourselves to your promise, that despite the fact that we are sinful people, you will take our faith and count that as righteousness. And so Father, I pray this morning that, that your spirit would stir our hearts to believe this good news, 
to live out this good news, to point other people to this good news. Father, you are worthy of all honor and worship and glory. And I pray that as we take time to respond now, you would lead us uh, to respond in line with your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.